Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, Dr. Stephen D. Bloom. As well as being a big fan of Lost in Space and science fiction in general, Dr. Bloom is the author of a fascinating book titled The Physics and Astronomy of Science Fiction. Published in 2016 by McFarland, the book explores a wide range of sci-fi movies, TV series, books, and short stories by exploring their underlying concepts of physics and astronomy. Written for those of us who are not real rocket scientists, Steve's entertaining and highly readable book assesses the accuracy and plausibility of many of the complex concepts that often appear in science fiction, such as interstellar flight, time travel, teleportation, robots, alien life, as well as other genre fixtures. Before we speak with him, a little background info on Dr. Bloom. Growing up in the New York City suburbs in the early 1970s, Steve, like many of us, would rush home from his neighborhood school to watch reruns of Lost in Space. There began his love for science and astronomy in particular. Later, he would go on to major in astrophysics at Columbia University and then earned his PhD in astronomy from Boston University in 1994. After that, he continued doing research as a postdoctoral fellow at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center located outside Washington, D.C. in Greenbelt, Maryland, and then at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. These days, Dr. Bloom is a professor of physics and astronomy at Hampton Sydney College, located near Farmville, Virginia, where he lives with his wife, daughter, and cat. When we recorded this episode, I had a lot of questions for the professor, and he was very generous with his time. In fact, so much so, I've decided to split our conversation into two special Calling Alpha Control interviews, where we'll discuss Steve's love for sci-fi entertainment especially Lost in Space, and dig deeply into his wonderfully informative book on the science of science fiction. So sit back, relax, and enjoy part one of this intriguing conversation with Dr. Stephen D. Bloom. Hey, Dr. Stephen Bloom, sir. Welcome to Alpha Control. Wow, it's a real pleasure to have you on board our show today. 
Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about physics and astronomy and lost in space. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I'm so happy about this because it's been a goal of mine for some time to interview someone with exactly your background and experience, you know, kind of to talk about just that, the uh, physics and astronomy of science fiction in general and lost in space in particular. But as luck would have it, you happened to send us an email, a very kind email, complimenting us on the podcast. And I happen to notice you're in your signature block that you were a professor teaching physics and astronomy. And then I, when I scrolled down, I saw you'd written a book about that very subject. So I was absolutely thrilled. Well, I have to be honest, I, I forgot that I even had that in my signature. Uh, <laughs> I, I, certainly, I didn't do that on purpose. I wasn't trying to uh, advertise that. But oh, I no, no. I to say something nice about the podcast. That was the furthest thing from my mind. But boy, I'm glad you had it in there because I would have missed this golden opportunity, and it is for me. But your book, it is really interesting. And what I like about it, you know, you don't have to be a PhD in physics or astronomy to understand it. You can get a lot out of it. I think it's just terrific. I'm really looking forward to talking about it. But before we do that, I want to ask you specifically, what came first for you, science or science fiction? Oh, wow. I think they really probably both came around the same time. Uh, if I think about it hard, probably science came ever so slightly earlier, kind uh -huh. of sparked by the moon landing in 1969 when I was just a little boy. And just other related events at that time, just talking about more moon landings mm -hmm. and even the future of the space program, all that just kind of inspired me. And just about that same time, Lost in Space had ended and gone into syndication, and I was just starting to look at the TV. That was probably the time the TV is kind of like their babysitter. Right. I mean, my, my mom and brothers were around, and I had plenty of interaction with them, <laughs> but I was the TV was kind of it then. So I was looking at whatever reruns were there. So Lost in Space was there and Star Trek was there eventually. I think I got into that a bit later. Sure. But first was Lost in Space for science fiction. Oh, yeah. I definitely remember, like you talk about in your preface, you know, that July 20th, 1969, my parents did the same thing. They plopped me down in front of the TV, in that case, to witness something that was absolutely historic. But they also plopped me down in front of the TV quite often to, so that they could get something else done around the house. And Lost in Space right. was there. It was a, I do remember seeing it shortly after that in reruns. So that's pretty fun. It's possible that I may have seen it even in first run, but I don't remember. I mean, I'm by, I have older brothers, so they probably were watching it in first run, and I might have been there, but I only really remember it in syndication. Ditto, yeah. I have some vague memory that I saw it probably late third season or something like that when it was yeah. still on the air. But, you know, it's kind of interesting to me. Here you are, a PhD in astronomy and, you know, this hard science background. But <laughs> as Kurt and I have often teased, you know, Lost in Space is not really a very scientific science fiction show. But yet, apparently you still enjoy it today. Why do you think that is? Well, I think a lot of it is just the good storytelling and some of the rich characters. Like when I was a kid, goofy stuff like Space Vikings and that sort of thing really appealed to me. So I, I wanted to watch more. Now, mm -hmm. as an adult, maybe not even totally an adult, but as an older kid and an adult, I kind of wish they had done more like Antimatter Man or something slightly more serious. But as a kid, I, I kind of appreciate that. I think some adults probably did, too. But generally, I think they did a good job with some of the stories. Now, when it comes to the science, yeah, a lot of it's lacking. But 
I didn't think it was a big deal at the time, and and I still don't. I mean, I I could point out what's accurate and what and what's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to that. Uh, you make you you make a good point though in your book that the purpose of science fiction entertainment, uh, whether it be movies, TV shows, or books, whatever. You know, it's not really necessarily to teach you science, although it's great if that happens by by happenstance, as it were. But really, it's to entertain. And, you know, even as silly as some of those episodes of Lost in Space can be, um, they certainly entertain. And I still think they do. A lot of times it's the humor, both intentional and unintentional these days, which uh, we have fun talking about. And the family aspect itself was something that kind of sold it, in my opinion. So, now, at the same time, there were other goofy sitcoms on that we probably all enjoyed too, like Gilligan's Island and I Dream of Genie, and that's the. And I think Lost in Space probably connected to those in that way because it was the same sort of goofy humor at times, but also had a bit more of the seriousness, at least at first, and a little bit towards the end, that added to that. It was a bit more than that, because there was a little bit of a serious topic there, sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because it could have, you know, drama or, you know, slightly horror-like elements to it. So, you know, it checked a lot of boxes, if you will. So it makes me feel better, at least, not being a scientist, that someone of your background and experience can still enjoy the show. So. I guess I'm in good company, huh? <laughs> yeah. And it might even be a little bit of a mislabel to call it science fiction, because that implies that most of it probably would be accurate science. I mean, some people might call it space opera or something like that. Sure. But it has some of the trappings of science because they're talking about space and mm-hmm. they're talking about atomic engines and that kind of thing and time travel a little bit, gravity, whatever. There's a little bit of space babble kind of going on. But uh, it's mostly just fun stories that happen to be in space mm-hmm. or that, on a planet somewhere. That's very true. Well, that's pretty cool that Lost in Space sort of started it for you. And then you went on, eventually wound up getting your PhD in astronomy. Walk us through that. Okay. Uh, well, I, as an undergraduate, I majored in astrophysics at Columbia. Uh, then after a little bit of time, it, it kind of followed my undergraduate education. I just decided that I wanted to continue with astronomy. I'd always been interested in it and I pursued it as an undergraduate. So I decided, mm-hmm. well, why not? Just continue on. So I went, <laughs> applied to a bunch of graduate schools, and uh, one of the ones that I got into was Boston University. And so I decided to pursue graduate studies in astronomy at, at Boston University. Oh, that's very cool. Was there a specialty? You have to do a dissertation and everything, I understand, when you do a PhD. What were you uh, specifically uh, looking at? Well, specifically, I was looking at how the high-energy light, like gamma rays and X-rays, get created by quasars. And quasars are a type of very bright, distant galaxy. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, people didn't quite understand how it was creating the light that it was creating. I did my little parts in trying to explain the production of gamma rays and X-rays from some of these objects. Uh-huh. Now, gamma rays and X-rays, are those uh, constituents or the equivalent of cosmic rays? Are they related in any way? Uh, they're related in they're they're coming from similar objects in space. Cosmic rays generally refer to particles, ah. and gamma rays and X-rays are a form of light or energy. Got it. Okay. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. We should have saved that question for the uh, astronomy chapter. So you got your PhD, and then you did some uh, postdoctoral research uh, at NASA, of all things. Uh, how'd you wind up doing that? 
Well, I, I want to continue studying in that area. And uh, one thing I should be clear about is I was studying at NASA Goddard at first. Uh, Goddard Space Flight Center is kind of a big research campus. Mm-hmm. If you think about it like a university, except everybody is doing something related to space. Right. Uh, they might be doing astronomy research or putting together an instrument that has to go aboard a satellite or tracking something in space. Uh, everyone is doing some sort of science or engineering related to space. Mm-hmm. And so there was that opportunity of just meeting so many brilliant people working on similar sorts of things. And I was so glad that I did that. Neat. And then you eventually decide to pursue a career in academia. Was that sort of a natural progression or are there other career paths open to PhDs in astronomy? Yeah, I I think it's a natural progression in that I don't know exactly what people might be doing more commonly now, but at that time it was very common for PhDs in some fields to at least try to pursue something in academia. Uh, But there are other careers. One thing that you can do is just continue on at a government lab. So there are some permanent types of jobs there, especially for people working on something more related to building an instrumentation or a part of something that's going to go on a satellite or rocket or something like that. So, So someone like that might secure a longer term position. Likewise, a lot of people in astronomy and other physics and engineering type PhDs who would go on to perhaps uh, get jobs with aerospace companies like Ball or uh, Northrop Grumman or something like that. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't necessarily be doing pure astronomy. They would probably be working on, again, some part of a satellite or maybe on a tracking program or something like that. But that's one possibility. Another totally different path would be something like public education. A kind of famous example of that is Neil deGrasse Tyson. Ah. He uh, is the director of the planetarium in New York and, of course, has narrated shows like the new version of The Cosmos and, and other things like that, some NOVA programs, and has written books. And so he's quite a famous example of that sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, you know, you've been immersed in this since the time you started school and even today, because now you are, in fact, professor at Hampton Sydney College, and you're teaching both physics and astronomy. Is that right? Yes. So I'm teaching a combination of introductory astronomy classes. Uh, Those would mainly be for non-majors, so people satisfying a general science requirement. Then I'm also teaching some upper-level sort of astrophysics and observational astronomy classes for people who are more specifically interested in that field. But also I'm teaching some more general upper-level physics classes for people who are interested in becoming engineers or or maybe in going to graduate school in physics and and that kind of thing. That's cool. Well, you mentioned in your book that at some point, I think while you were there at Hampton Sydney, you got to do an interdisciplinary seminar talking about physics and astronomy and science fiction, I think. Do I have that correct? You do. Uh, I taught two different special honors seminars on science fiction. One was with a philosopher, a philosophy professor, and he was a co-teacher, and we kind of on and off taught either philosophy or physics and astronomy, and we'd interact with each other. It wasn't like he would just come in on one day and I would come in on another day. We would actually study what the other was doing and talk about it with each other in front of the students and with the students and assign work, kind of integrating those things. So, 
And then I taught a second one with an English literature professor and, and did the same sort of thing. Uh-huh. So, uh, so I found that kind of an interesting experience uh, where uh, kind of mixing and matching and topics like that. And we were talking about um, science fiction books and short stories and TV shows and films ah. and just talking about elements of philosophy or literature and elements of physics and astronomy. And that kind of got me interested in, oh, uh, well, maybe I could take some of these course notes and extend it and write something about it because I'm really interested in this stuff. Yes. And uh, after talking to actually another author on a similar subject, uh, I was kind of inspired to submit a proposal to a publisher. And the rest is history, as they say. Well, tell us a little bit about how you finally got going on the book and then give us a brief overview of how the book's laid out and whatnot. Well, I started writing with just going with what I know and love the most. So I was most interested in things like time travel and alternate universes and stuff like that. So I think I just wrote about that, not quite off the top of my head, but from what I remembered about episodes and what I remembered about the physics I knew mm-hmm. and some books I read and just started with that first. Then I went back and did more of a real outline, got myself organized to kind of fill in on things that I didn't know quite as much about, like robotics and things like that, Sure. Uh, which I think are interesting, but I, they were a little bit outside my specialty, so I had to do a bit more research on those. Uh, as far as how the book ended up, it, it's about 250 pages with about 10 chapters, with each focusing on a common sci-fi theme, so things like alternate universes, time travel, space travel, teleportation, Mm -hmm. extraterrestrial life, robotics. No, it's really cool. The neat thing about it for uh, those of us who haven't taken a physics class in in decades was you started off with the first two chapters are sort of a an overview or an introduction to physics and then astronomy. And astronomy is probably the one science that I know the least about, so that was very helpful for me. But again, this is written at a level that I think the average person who's interested in science fiction would be able to uh, easily digest. And again, you have the uh, reference chapter at the end if people want to do – or want to see the uh, math equations, they can do that. We will not be talking about those specifically. No, I'll spare people the <laughs> graduate <laughs> physics lecture. Exactly, exactly. But I did think it was helpful because I think I mentioned to you on the phone, you know, the last advanced physics class I took in college was something called modern physics, which was basically general relativity and special relativity, something like that. And I was very lucky to scrape out of there with a C minus. So I was just floored when I read that first chapter on physics, how much has happened in the meantime. But before we get into that, I just want to pause because the other thing that I was really struck by reading your book is how broad your knowledge of science fiction is. Um, I thought I knew a lot about science fiction, but just based on the references you make and the examples you give from different movies and books and short stories and TV shows, it's pretty impressive, I have to say, Doctor. So I have the idea I should turn the tables on you to make this a little bit more of a challenge for you. And I'm going to start off each chapter discussion with a a little pop quiz, a, a little science fiction, science pop quiz, if you're game for that. How about it? Sure, I'm game. Okay. All right. They're not too hard. I think you... Okay. <laughs> I think you have a pretty good chance of acing this test, but some of them could be a little bit obscure. We'll see. Well, yeah, we'll see. Okay. Well, why don't we just dive into it? So we'll talk a little bit about chapter one, which is the uh, introduction to physics. And here's your pop quiz. And 
We'll start off with a multiple choice question, and lucky for you, it's Lost in Space related. So, Oh, okay. Here we go. In the original Lost in Space, Professor Robinson quizzes Mrs. Robinson about the, quote, fourth state of matter. Now, I'm pretty sure most people can name the first three, solid, liquid, or gas. But what did John state is the fourth state of matter? Was it A, antimatter, B, Bose-Einstein condensates, C, plasma, or D, exotic matter? I would have to say that it was C, plasma. <laughs> you got that right. I wasn't too hard, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's nothing like blood plasma, by the way. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Plasma, I'll go out on a limb here. I think, isn't it basically like an ionized gas, more or yes. less? Yeah. Teach me a little something here, Professor. So the difference between solid, liquid, and gas is very obvious. What qualifies plasma as being another state of matter? You know, what differentiates it from a just an ordinary gas? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I, I think it just has to do with the fact that it interacts with other matter differently. Once it's lost its electrons, whatever, it has these bare positive charges, which can interact with other things like magnetic fields ah. a little bit more easily, whereas just a regular gas would be neutral and not interacting with magnetic fields. I mean, that might be a bit of an arbitrary choice to call that a, another state of matter, but I think that's probably wise because of, of how it interacts with certain fields and forces. Yeah. And actually, I did learn something. Well, I learned a lot in your book. But the other thing that you mentioned is there's a quasi-fifth state of matter, which I think made it into the multiple choice answers, if I'm remembering correctly. It was at the Bose-Einstein. The Bose-Einstein condensate, yeah. Right, which I can't remember what that is, but <laughs> theoretically that might be another state of matter. That's pretty cool. Well, you don't really need it, but I'm going to give you an extra credit question, which may be, oh, a, little boy. Bit, may be a little bit tougher than oh, the— Oh, no. Uh, okay, so what episode of Lost in Space did John quiz Marine about the fourth state of matter? Oh, my gosh. That's, that's tough, right? It, it's one of the early ones. Yeah. So it's certainly first season. Yeah. Um, Take a wild guess. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm forgetting the title, the one about giants on the earth. or uh, There were giants in the earth? Is there that... were giants on the earth. Ah, okay. You're close. So you're absolutely right. It was a first season episode, one of the early ones. It's actually the one called The Raft. When they tried to turn uh -huh. the diving bell from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea into a little uh, space pod so Don could go back. And they at, uh -huh. at first, they were trying to get the Jupiter 2 off the ground using a plasma propulsion system that they had jury-rigged in about two hours, which my hat's off to them if they could do that. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. All right. Well, good. You yeah. All right. Well, physics. I have seen the episode, but uh, I had forgotten that. Yeah. I forgot exactly where that scene was from. That's okay. Like I said, that's extra credit, so it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. You're still batting a thousand right now. So, okay, let's talk about real briefly. What do you think are the important things people should get out of that chapter on physics? What are the kind of the heavy concepts that you're going to refer back to as we go through some of these other sci-fi tropes? I would say really anything related to gravity. Because um, science fiction, especially space-based science fiction, deals so much with the interaction of planets with things, mm -hmm. 
that uh, or, or bigger scale stuff like galaxies. So it's whatever you could get out of gravity or relate to relativity as well. Um, that would probably be the most important concepts to get out of that chapter. Yeah, I kind of agree with you because the way you described it was particularly helpful. Because is it fair to say that our understanding of what gravity is and how how it affects, like you're talking about planets and everything, really sort of was revolutionized with Einstein's uh, relativity theory? And am I in the ballpark there? Yes, you are in the ballpark. I would say for everyday things, it didn't change anything. <laughs> I mean, a ball that you throw or even even you know, a baseball hit by a bat or something relatively complicated just in everyday life is going to be the same whether you use Einstein's relativity or not. Sure. Where it starts to really matter is if you're going really, really fast, that is close to the speed of light, more than 1%, more than a few percent of the speed of light, which is thousands of kilometers per second, or if you're anywhere near a very massive object. Mm-hmm. So uh, in that way, it's a little bit arbitrary what you call a massive object, because the Earth is a pretty massive object. But uh, a person walking on the Earth at normal speed, the effects of relativity are not that great. Probably have to take it into account if you want to get a very, very precise location of someone using GPS mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But away from that very, very precise kind of measurement, you could completely ignore it. But once you start getting into space and traveling at high speeds and interacting with planets and stars and tracking orbits of those things, then you have to really start taking it into account. Right. Yeah, and you get into the whole idea of the effect gravity has on space-time, <laughs> the bending of light around massive objects and things like that. Um, yes. It's <laughs> cosmic stuff, really, if you think about it, but very cool. Before we move on, I do have one little question that always bugs me, because when we start talking about quantum physics and particle physics and all these different uh, evolutions, the thing that always kind of jams me up is being able to really conceptualize the difference between matter and energy. Because when you start getting into all this advanced stuff, they start talking about forces in terms of particles. And when I think of a particle, you know, that's like an object, not an energy or a force. You know, you have gravitons, photons, glue, all these different crazy things. Right. Is this just a, a difficulty we have with language, or is there something I'm missing here? I mean, how do we really differ? Uh, matter takes up space, right? And it has a mass. Yes. Uh, so I, I'm, I always kind of get hung up on this. I don't know if you can help me. <laughs> yeah, perhaps out. I can iron out some of that. Uh, I would say that most normal matter that we encounter, whether it's a person or a phone or a chair, or is just a bunch of bonded together microscopic particles. Sure. That is protons, neutrons, electrons. Now, there's different amounts of those depending on what the phone or the chair is made out of, but that's all stuff with mass and is made up of those fundamental particles. There are other particles besides that, but we don't have to get into that. Sure. Any kind of normal matter that we're going to see in our lives, more or less, is that stuff. Protons, neutrons, and electrons. And it kind of stays that way unless it gets introduced into a really, really extreme situation. Say, very, very high temperatures. And starting with thousands of degrees, you could start separating electrons from certain atoms. Uh, That's where we get into ionized gases and things like that. And at many, many millions of degrees, you could separate out the nucleus of an atom and 
divide up protons and neutrons with nuclear fusion and things like that. Right. And at even higher temperatures, you could start breaking things down even more into quarks. Right. But at these very, very, very high temperatures and energies, uh, something else begins to happen. Um, electrons could start colliding with each other and creating pure energy. And this is where the equation, uh, I promise not to talk. That's all right. Equation, we know that. I think uh, we all know this equation. <laughs> yeah, the, but that's where that equation E equals MC squared comes from. It's talking about this equivalence between mass and energy that at very, very high temperatures, you can start having, at first, electrons colliding with each other to create just pure energy. And the pure energy wouldn't have mass itself. Uh, it's something with mass that collides with another identical particle with um, mass, or actually it's antimatter equivalent, mm -hmm. and that would uh, create energy. At even higher energies, um, you can have protons colliding with antiprotons that can create pure energy. Uh, there are also lower energy reactions, like the nuclear reactions that we're reasonably familiar with. Right. Now, an opposite process can happen, too. That is, light can actually kind of collide with other light. That is, photons reacting with other photons create electrons and positrons and antiprotons and things like that. So the, the, really, the main difference, though, between something like a proton, neutron, or electron is that they have mass. Right. And in their normal state, that is the situation we tend to see them in, they're in their lowest energy state and just kind of sitting around. And that energy would not have mass. And the only way that you can get a mass to turn into energy is uh, really speed it up or get it to a very high temperature. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. But you can see why it gets a little confusing for the... <laughs> For the layman, when you uh, when you speak in these yeah. terms, though, so, though that was good, I really appreciate that. Uh, I could take up a lot more time <laughs> with this uh, physics chapter, but I think it's best if we move on to the astronomy chapter. And why don't we start off with a pop quiz? Now, this is another multiple choice question here. This one might be a little bit tougher. I'm not sure, but uh -oh. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see. We'll see how it goes here. Okay, so here's your question: What big budget 1979 space opera? had an all-star cast, which included Maximilian Schell, Yvette Mumeau, and Ernest Borgnine, among others, and whose title included a well-known astronomical object. Was it A, Asteroid, B, The Angry Red Planet, C, The Black Hole, or D, Forbidden Planet? Wow, I'm going to guess it was C, The Black Hole. Because I know it came out around that time. I can't remember who was in it. Yep, you got it. You got it. It okay. is the black hole. <laughs> yeah. right. Not a particularly well-loved uh, 1979 movie. Uh, it was uh, a Disney uh, it, production. It had a great cast, though. I it mean, did. Those people were great actors. I mean, Ernest Borgnine, especially, I think, is great in everything. Yeah. Um, but, well, Anthony uh, Perkins was in that, too, and Robert oh, Forrester. Uh, and I thought the special effects and the art design were really cool. But it sounds like you don't remember the film too well, but I'll... I don't. <laughs> okay. So my extra credit question that I had for you, I will skip. But I'll ask you this. This will be a fun extra credit. You may not remember this, but the main spaceship called the Cygnus gets sucked into the black hole. And at the other end, they find themselves in... Hell. Would you say that's a pretty uh, scientifically accurate <laughs> depiction of what you would find if you actually went into a black hole? Um, well, what would happen to you if you went into a black hole would probably seem like hell. 
<laughs> Good answer. But not literally with the devil. But with not pitch. literally hell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is the literal hell. So. Yeah, exactly. And that was probably harder for you since you don't remember that movie in any way. Yeah. Well, astronomy. Okay. What are the themes that you're trying to get across to the reader in this particular chapter? One thing, I'm just trying to get a sense of some of the differences between objects. Uh, I think most people probably wouldn't have planets or stars and that sort of thing confused. But just a little bit about some of the differences of the types of planets that we can have or, or how different stars evolve or how galaxies form or exactly what's going to happen with the universe over time. I would mm-hmm. say those are some of the basic concepts that I mentioned. Yeah, no, it's really cool. And you do talk about black holes and the evolution of the universe and uh, different types of stars and so forth. So it's a really nice uh, overview. One of the things you did in that chapter that I liked was you start off just clearing up a lot of misconceptions that are common in science fiction. What are some right. of those that you would like to point out? Uh, well, well, some of the common ones in Lost in Space in particular, and I know that you and Kurt have mentioned that as the sort of the just randomly kind of confusing um, galaxy and universe and solar system. And so these terms are just sort of thrown about like, uh, as Kurt mentioned once, nobody really opened up the encyclopedia. <laughs> so, uh, so it's like... They exist, you know, they're at your local library and at that time in a lot of homes, uh, but nobody thought to really do that, apparently, for some of those episodes. Uh, So that was a real problem, at least with some of the scripting of Lost in Space. It it seemed at times that people kind of understood the phenomena, but then they just started throwing out words that were confusing. Uh, With Star Trek, I think they did a bit of a better job with that sort of thing, although as Star Trek evolved into the other series, I think throwing out the techno babble just kind of became ridiculous. That's true. So that wasn't exactly a misconception, but just kind of non-science that seemed like science. So it was the same sort of thing going on where a scriptwriter didn't know what to say, I guess, or, or, or wanted to say something kind of consistent with previous episodes and just sort of threw in techno babble. That's true. Well, you know, the interesting thing about that original Star Trek series, unlike Lost in Space, is they actually had this outside company. I think it was called DeForest Enterprises or something like that. And they would actually review the scripts for scientific accuracy. I know that Irwin Allen had nobody like that reviewing his scripts because it's fairly clear. It's fairly clear, exactly. One of the things you mentioned is related to, like, you know, the naming conventions, I guess you'd say, for stars. And I kind of learned something about that. Again, astronomy is not something I've spent a lot of time reading about. I certainly never took a class in it. But you talk specifically about in Welcome Stranger. Hapgood and Will are talking about different stars that he had gone around. I think it was oh, like right. Epsilon Indy versus Epsilon Iridani. And uh, what was wrong with that conversation? Well, <laughs> they talked about it as if those two stars were somehow related because they had Epsilon right. in them. But Epsilon is just an indication of how bright the star is in a particular constellation. So those two constellations had absolutely nothing to do with each other. It just happened to be whatever epsilon. It's like the fourth, fifth brightest star in that constellation. So yeah, I think the scriptwriter probably just thought they were related because of the word epsilon. Right, right. So, and again, I I did not know that. So basically, if it's the brightest star in that constellation, would be alpha something like 
Alpha right. Centauri. <laughs> right, that's a good example, Alpha Centauri, brightest right. star in the Centaurus constellation. Which is also interesting the way we name them, too, when you think about it, because basically the constellation is how that grouping of stars looks from the perspective of Earth, correct? I mean, that's... Or relatively nearby. I mean, yeah. most of the solar system, although the perspective would be different from the surface of another planet, because the tilt of that planet might be mm-hmm. different, but... The stars are so far away that pretty much anything in the solar system is going to have a pretty similar view after correcting for things like tilt of the planet. But once you start getting light years away, then your perspectives are going to change and the constellations will start looking a bit different. Yeah. Well, of course, there's probably no end to the science fiction properties that get astronomical concepts wrong, but there's got to be some out there that get them right. And that must be delightful for you when that does happen. Do you have any particular examples that you can think of that would be interesting? You know, I'll pull one from Lost in Space, and this is a little bit of a, say, physics or astronomy sort of thing. I liked that in the very first episode, they made an attempt to show what gravity-free environment would be like. Mm-hmm. Now, it was done in a slightly silly way because they showed the girls' ponytails kind of being lifted up into the air. <laughs> and uh, and you, so you kind of get a sense that there's a, a wire lifting. <laughs> right. But at least they, they made an attempt. So I, I think in other science fiction and a lot with uh, Lost in Space continuing, they kind of just say, there's this um, unexplained artificial gravity and don't right. really get into it. But it was good that they showed that when that's off, you know, they're floating around. So I thought it was good that they kind of dealt with that, even though they didn't really explain how their artificial gravity gets created. They, right. they did show what it would be like if it was off. Yeah. And then they even showed Dr. Smith, I think, kind of falling to the floor when they turn it back on or something. Yes. <laughs> so I, I liked that there was at least a little bit of an attempt to do that. Now, we've mentioned Star Trek a bit, too. There was a lot of astronomy in the various Star Trek versions. But I remember one where they're going to the Andromeda Galaxy, or they leave our galaxy and go to the Andromeda Galaxy. And I like that they don't just show this from the Palomar Observatory. They kind of show it in the distance, roughly the size it would be if you were kind of coming out of our galaxy and, and just saw this fuzzy thing. Mm-hmm. I think they magnified it somewhat so you could tell that it was the Andromeda Galaxy, but it wasn't just this huge thing in front of them. And they did also mention that it would take a long time to get there. They right. Didn't, like instantaneously appear at the Andromeda Galaxy. So although the time that they mentioned was still probably ridiculous, at least they kind of made some attempt to say it's going to take a long time. So I liked that they kind of dealt with it semi-seriously and took some of the science in there, although they're playing fast and loose a little bit. Of course, of course. No, <laughs> but that's cool. And of course, that was a major plot element because the title of that episode escapes me, but I think that Enterprise had been hijacked by some aliens and they were trying to go back to Andronima and just using the crew sort of as their hostages. Right. But Star Trek also got things wrong because I think I remember another episode where they talked about some big energy barrier on the edge of the Milky Way galaxy. It was actually in that same episode, I think. Uh, well, it's done in a couple of episodes, but in that same episode, they do encounter the energy barrier again. <laughs> so that, yeah, that's kind of silly. I mean, you just start leaving the galaxy. Nothing yes. really special happens except you encounter fewer and fewer stars, but right. probably a bit more boring than encountering an energy okay. barrier. Yeah, you encounter fewer and fewer stars, and yet the Enterprise is still lit up like it's uh, 
you know, on a parking lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, but a black spaceship is not going to be very entertaining, obviously. Well, that was another thing. I remember that. uh, I don't know if you remember the show Space 1999. Right. Uh, It was kind of about the moon kind of escaping the Earth's orbit and floating around in space. They always show a lit up moon, but it's supposed to be already light years away from the Earth. Right. It's in the dead of space. What's lighting it up? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, but never mind. How did the moon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of crazy in and of itself. It really is. All right. I hope you're enjoying this first of two special interviews with author and astronomy professor Steve Bloom as much as I am. Steve's book on the science of science fiction is both educational and very entertaining. But what shines through most is his passion for the sci-fi genre that inspired him to pursue a career in physics and astronomy. He's got more to share about his book and much more. So sit tight for the second half of our interview with author, professor, and Lost in Space fan, Dr. Stephen D. Bloom. Well, that's good. Uh, We'll leave the astronomy chapter and move on to chapter three, which is the physics of space travel. This was the chapter that I spent the most time sort of rereading and trying to soak up as much as I could because I just found it fascinating. But, of course, we have a pop quiz for this one, too. Oh, okay. It's a fill-in-the-blank question. So here we go. Uh Two iconic science fiction spacecraft were powered using fictional fuel that both started with the letter D. Can you name the fuels and the spaceships for each? <laughs> uh, well, I know that the Jupiter-2 was fueled with deuteronium. Mm-hmm. That's correct. And we might have been just talking about the other one. Oh, uh, was it... Um... Oh, 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 yes. Uh, the Enterprise and dilithium crystals. Ding, 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 ding. You got it. <laughs> Uh, and I didn't even study for this. This does not go over for this interview. So uh, you're really kind of probing my memory here though, without any kind of prompting from anything else. It's a pop quiz. I mean, come on. Do you give pop quizzes, by the way? I try not to give pop quizzes, even though I'm told by a lot of people in education that the best way to test someone's knowledge of something after mm-hmm. you've kind of exposed them to it is a pop quiz, because then they're not restudying it or whatever. You're just going by what they learned after they did the reading and listened to the lecture. Give them a pop quiz, but I don't do it. Uh, it's extremely unpopular. <laughs> I had a professor at Auburn. It was like my fourth year. I was putting this class off as long as possible, physical chemistry. And uh, Dr. Colburn, and he had actually worked at, well, it might have been Redstone Arsenal, but he had done something, either NASA or that, I can't remember. But no one else at that level gave pop quizzes. That was like a you know a freshman or maybe a sophomore class, you might get a pop quiz every now and then. But this guy loved the pop quizzes, but it did keep you on your toes. I yeah, to say, it, does. it does. I, I absolutely hated them. So yeah. <laughs> Thursdays was a pop quiz day, so that was, that was ah. funny. Oh, well, here's your extra credit. You don't really need it because you're batting a thousand here. But which one of those futuristic fuels was also known as the universal currency? Well, I think it's deuteronium because I'm pretty sure it was the Android episode or something where they kind of mentioned that. That's correct. You got it. That's right. Not too bad. 
Well, we're going to talk about the physics of space travel. So why don't you tell us what you think is important for the uh, readers to get out of this chapter? What are the main things you're trying to get across here? Well, at first, I'm just trying to get across the limitations of present day space travel, like what we can and can't do. So we can go to the edge of the solar system because we've done it because we've gone to Pluto and we've actually sent some spacecraft well past that. Mm -hmm. So we can do that. And that's kind of conventional fuel and assists from gravity. But beyond that, you can't really get there unless you want to wait 10,000 years or 100,000 years. You can't really get anywhere else with conventional fuel. So you have to think of other ways to do that. So one way might be with uh, nuclear fusion technology, Mm -hmm. which we're just starting to develop now. Well, we started 50, 60 years ago, but we're starting to have successes with it now. So it might be possible to have a rocket powered by nuclear fusion. Ah. The reason why uh, you would want to use nuclear fusion is you can get much more energy out of that. Right. Because you always have a fuel problem, right, with a conventional rocket. You've got to carry your fuel, right? <laughs> that's, that's Well, one thing is you've got to carry your fuel. And the other part of that is thinking about E equals MC squared. There's only a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that MC squared that you could actually sort of burn and get energy out of in a typical chemical reaction. And even though chemical fuel the petroleum-based fuel or whatever they're using for modern rockets these days is fairly efficient for a fuel, it's still nowhere near as efficient as something like nuclear fusion. <laughs> yeah, that's that makes sense. So that's one thing, but that's still not going to get you past the speed of light, if that's even possible, correct? Well, I won't say nothing. We could get into exactly what could get you there, sort of a Star Trek kind of thing. But yeah, a typical rocket, whether you're going to use chemical fuel or nuclear fuel, whatever, isn't going to get you fast. There's that speed limit of the speed of light. We could talk about the exceptions to that in a moment, but. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go there because, you know, these science fiction properties deal with this in a lot of different ways. I mean, if they're going to other star systems, you've got, I guess, two options. Either you're doing a sublight journey that's taking, as you said, many, many, many years, and you can either, like the Robinsons, put them in freezing tubes or suspended animation and just gut it out, or you can have what you called it the generational ship, which is another concept altogether. What's that mean, basically? Uh, basically, you're going with this idea that somehow uh, the crew would reproduce. Uh, you're encouraging them to do it, and I'm sure they'd be happy to oblige. Yeah. And they're going to have children, and those children will have children. I mean, you have to have a fairly large crew to do this effectively. But uh, those generations would then each learn how to run the ship, et cetera, and so forth. So you'd keep the ship going by having different generations created in space. Right. Now, that's a little bit risky because you don't know exactly what the next generation is going to know or care about, but but uh, presuming that you can impart your knowledge to the next generations, it's a doable kind of thing. There, there's nothing in physics that's kind of banning you from doing that, right. even though it might be impractical in some ways. It's, you can do it. You could at least try it. Or, well, I'm trying to think of... Where I've seen that concept in science fiction, I feel like there might have been a Space 1999 episode where they come across a ship that was a generational ship, but I can't... Yeah, there was one like that. Is it like the Mission of the Darians or something like that? Yes, yes. Uh So in that episode, 
they do when the moon is floating about. Uh, they do uh, encounter a 25 mile long or something like that spaceship uh, that's just a generational ship that left the, their star system when it went nova or whatever terminology they use. Right, right. Uh, well, but of course, the sexy option is actually, you know, not proving Einstein's wrong about the speed of light being a an absolute speed limit, so to speak, but more or less uh, changing the rules of the game in order to make it possible for within the lifetime of a of a normal human being making it to right. another star system. What are some of the concepts that you talk about in science fiction, and what's the plausibility of these things? Well, the plausibility of doing it with um say, nuclear fusion or something, that's reasonably possible, uh, then you might actually get to another star system in, say, 10 years or something like that. But if you want to start thinking about sort of the Star Trek thing of going faster than the speed of light, then you have to really think about what Star Trek did, that is warping space. Mm -hmm. They actually sort of got the terminology right, uh, because some, some scientists actually thought about this, thinking about it in terms of general relativity. Now, they were probably had Star Trek as an inspiration. They were thinking, well, can we make this work in terms of real relativity? And one thing you can do is actually warp space ahead of you and get something to kind of move changing space. So instead of moving in space, you're actually warping space itself. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know whether the original writers of Star Trek actually really thought that that's what they were doing, or they just thought that the word warp sounded cool. But... <laughs> But you can actually do it uh, using the equations of general relativity. Now, the problem is that it takes a tremendous amount of energy, like the energy of thousands of stars or even more than that. So how you would get the energy to actually warp space to get you to the nearest star is kind of a question that you have to answer at some right. point. Right. Uh, wave some fairy dust on it and just go with the, the storyline at that point, I suppose. But that right. that idea of how much energy something would take, even if it's theoretically possible, that's kind of a running theme in your book, isn't it? Yes, uh, because it's a problem that comes up with things like uh, teleportation or, or also um, things like deflector dishes, and, mm -hmm. uh, that these things are possible in a sense that so you can come up with concepts in physics that make it work, but to actually do the engineering would require tremendous amounts of energy that you probably aren't going to have access to, like the energy of a galaxy or <laughs> thousands of stars or whatever, just some unfathomable amount of energy that you probably wouldn't have access to, or at least our civilization wouldn't for I can't even imagine ever having access to that kind of energy, but maybe in a millennium or something we would be able to do it, but probably not anytime soon. No, it doesn't seem likely. Still, it's fun to think about, but uh, that seems to be a, a major stumbling block at this point. But yeah. who knows? You know, they said man would never be able to fly. <laughs> so Yeah, it's just engineering. I mean, yeah. if you could think about it, do it <laughs> eventually. Just have to think about how to put things together and do it. Well, that's wild. Well, you know, I could spend a long time on this chapter because there are some really cool things. I, I loved that you spent time talking about various practical issues associated with space flight, like uh, carrying enough air on a spaceship, you know, and artificial gravity. You already touched on that. How does that work? Radiation and meteorites are another kind of a thing a lot of people don't think about. The, just the exposure to radiation 
In fact, yeah. that's a problem with their current space. You know, the just the in orbit or going yeah. to the moon. The the considerations of how much radiation. Uh, heck, as a pilot flying over the North Pole, you know, we have to be cognizant of solar flares and things like that as well, because they they mess with our. Uh, radio communications, and, you know, there's a cumulative dosage of radiation. So that's true. Right. But the other funny one that you mentioned, I thought, or not funny, but interesting one was the whole human psychology bit, you know, how yeah. how people react to being in a, uh, you know, a confined space for a long time. If you think about it, I don't know, you're talking about going to Mars maybe in a couple decades or something like that. That would be a long trip with our current technology. How would people react? It's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah, especially if you're going to stay on the surface for a long time. The trip itself to Mars might be as short as a few months. And then, yeah, of course, you'd have to return. So that's a year or a little Mm -hmm. bit more than a year. But you're probably going to want to spend a fair amount of time on the surface. So it's likely a two-year mission minimum. Right. But there's this exposure to things like meteorites and especially radiation because Mars has a very thin atmosphere and no magnetic field. So you're getting a lot of exposure to radiation. But the psychology of it is that you're separated from mission control. Uh, You have these delayed messaging effects. So um, one thing that um, NASA and also I think the Russian and Soviet program before that noticed with people who've been in space a long time is they start developing this us versus them kind of mentality where the crew starts to kind of do more things on its own, even though they've been more or less commanded to do a certain thing. There's more resistance and there's more, a little bit more irritability and kind of dealing with people telling them to do stuff because they feel like, well, you don't know what's really going down here. Mm-hmm. So we have to tell you what's going on here because you're down there where, you know, however far away Earth is. So there's, uh, and I can understand how that could happen because you're just so separated. Absolutely. No, it is something to think about. I'm not sure that I've seen too many science fiction films or TV shows that really delve into that topic too closely. So that would be something that would be interesting to know. I guess, what did Dr. Smith call it? Uh, space rapture or something, <laughs> something yeah, like that. Right. <laughs> like space psychosis or something. Yes. Yeah. Now, I think I've seen in some science fiction films where some guy just goes crazy and throws himself out an airlock or something like that. But it, it doesn't usually go explain. There isn't that much buildup. It's just that there's some, it's just a plot element that everyone is dying off. So one of the guys who dies off dies off by going crazy and throws himself out on an airlock. <laughs> right. But it would probably be a little bit more interesting if there's this more slow kind of progression where people are kind of feeling a little bit more cut off from home. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think we should move on. We kind of breeze through some of the rest of these chapters. So chapter four is called Universes, Dimensions, and Space. And this one I think might be hard for you, but uh, I'll I'll try it anyway. It's a fill-in-the-blank question. So here we go. Okay. Actor Ed Bishop, who starred in the British TV series UFO, was previously cast in the 1969 sci-fi feature film whose plot is centered on the discovery of a counter-Earth or an anti-Earth. Can you name the title of this film? Yes, I can. Uh, It happens to be one of my favorite films of the period, Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. Wow. Wow. Okay. I'm sorry for misjudging you. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm not worthy. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so I actually have a two-part extra credit question for you. Oh, no. Uh-huh. What? Credit. Okay, here we go. So what else does this film have in common with the TV series UFO? Uh, well, there's another actor that they share. Uh, the guy who plays the security chief in both, he was kind of played the security chief in Journey to the Far Side of the Sun and in UFO. That's, That's one similarity. Yes, that is one similarity, and I, I had completely forgotten about this. But this film was produced by the same... Uh, Mary, oh, by Jerry Anderson. Yeah. Jerry and Sylvia Anderson. That's correct. And then one thing I learned when I actually looked this one up to, to make sure I wasn't misremembering it is this film actually was released under a different title in Europe. Journey to the Far Side of the Sun was the U.S. title. That was very common, I guess, back in those days. And it was released under the title Doppelganger in Europe. So I, right. did, I did not know that. Why do you think that's one of your favorite films of the era? I just think it's so fun kind of playing around with that idea that uh, there's this other Earth out there, even though in terms of the science, it probably doesn't quite work because there can't be a planet on the other side of the sun that you didn't really know about. Mm -hmm. so, but especially not in 2065 or whenever they're placing it, where the technology would clearly be better to see something like that because you would have space probes kind of going around checking the other side. But even with that sort of failing, I think it's kind of cool that they're exploring that idea of duplicates, like the duplicate Earth. No, it is. It's really cool. And I think the whole idea of alternate universes is really a cool concept in science fiction. It's one of the things like Star Trek did very well with their mirror universes. I don't know what it is about it, but that it just scratches some little itch there that seems fun. If you think about that Mirror Mirror episode of Star Trek, it was a fun opportunity for those actors to get to play the uh, anti-archetypes of their usual characters, which is kind of interesting. And I've heard the actors say just that. I think I heard the same thing about the Lost in Space episode Anti-Matter Man, where one reason why, in particular, I think it was Mark Goddard, like that episode is he got a chance to be even more of a crazy man than he usually is. Right. Because <laughs> he's right. usually shown to be irate, <laughs> uh, you know, an easily irascible guy, you know, just kind of getting angry at everybody and everything. But in that episode, he's just they just take it to 11, you know. He's just going kind of really wild there. Oh, it was. Is yeah. the bearded version uh -huh. with the weird eye or <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's fun to play something different, you know, and especially they're all basically, even though he's hot headed and everything, they're basically good characters. It's kind of interesting when you get a chance to play a heavy, you know, versus your normal role. But I have to say, Steve, I was surprised. I sort of thought these things were more or less, you know, in the realm of fantasy versus science fiction. But I was surprised that these concepts, mirror universes, anti universes, whatever, it's something a scientists have actually thought about. Yeah, they really have. And for a long time, I think you're right that a lot of scientists were dismissing it as just a topic of science fiction. But I think more recently, in particular, the idea of the multiverse, that there could be other universes with other physical properties, that's something that um, a number of scientists have given a serious consideration, uh, kind of branched off from other related things in physics like uh, string theory, and mm -hmm. that there could be these possibilities manifesting themselves in other universes. So although some scientists probably still dismiss it because it's hard to actually find evidence of it, there actually are a couple of things you can do to maybe 
test for evidence of other universes out there. Really? At least certain versions. So people are just starting to think about this. And one of the reasons why I think it's popping up in science fiction more, especially the concept of the multiverse, is because scientists are talking about it more. Uh-huh. Well, one of the things that comes up in this chapter is that you give us the truth about antimatter. Quickly, what's the truth about antimatter? Oh, well, one truth about antimatter is that it's really kind of boring in a sense because it's really the same thing as regular matter, just has the opposite charge. Uh, so positron is just an electron with a positive charge instead of a negative charge. So there's nothing too mysterious about that. I guess the big deal about it, though, is that if it collides with its oppositely charged particle, then you get a lot of energy released, and that could be a big deal. Uh-huh. But the other thing you mentioned is that, at least as far as we know, it's extremely rare, correct? Very rare, yeah. There's some antimatter in the universe, but the ratio of regular matter and antimatter is just some very large number. And that's just kind of a mystery to us as to why things ended up that way. Mm-hmm. Now, we should be glad that it ended up that way. Otherwise, everything would have just annihilated and we'd have no people or anything else. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, it's still a mystery as to why we don't have, say, antimatter stars or antimatter galaxies, and that there's just very small amounts of naturally occurring antimatter. Right. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder, where do they get all that antimatter on Star Trek? Because they're always talking about the matter-antimatter. <laughs> <You know>? Right. <laughs> well, you can't create it, but that in itself takes a lot of energy just to get things up to high enough temperatures or speeds to kind of uh, try to create antimatter from regular particles. Interesting. Okay. That was a blast talking with author and professor Dr. Stephen Bloom. Now don't forget to stay tuned for part two of this special interview coming soon. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.